It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 229, The History of Athens and the Invention of Democracy. If you look at the geopolitical situation right now, the Persian Empire basically rules most of the known world. Um, but there's, you know, if the Persians looked around for conquest, where would be the next place to expand their empire? There's this group of peoples that are constantly causing friction for them. I mean, in Asia Minor, in the Western current Turkey, um, the Greeks, the Greek city-states, if they looked to the West, they'd see a, a very wealthy city of Athens, a very militant city of Sparta, and many other cities on the Greek mainland. And that's where the Persians are going to direct their attention next. And if you remember in the, the book of Zechariah and some of the other prophets, the world was at peace. But it's going to eventually, and very soon, erupt into war. And the Greek city of Athens is unique because it's actually a, let's call it a self-governed state. It's a state with a different form of government. Um, is it an aristocracy? It was once a monarchy. But it starts to self-govern itself and and, and if you look at, you study through history, they generally credit the invention of democracy to the city of Athens. And they credit the invention of the Republic to the Romans. And these governments are, are unique in the fact that they're not a monarchy. They're not an empire. It's not controlling. People have free will, but they're not perfect. You know, the, the Athenian democracy is only for wealthy landowners, but it's one of the first you see in all of history. And it's unique, and it's going to provide something that this world hasn't seen yet. And Brant Frost, the very studious Brant Frost, um, is going to catch us up in this episode on the history of Greece, um, specifically Athens and this invention of democracy, uh, because as we head into the Persian Wars, we've got to see that there's a class of cultures. And he's got Athens, he's going to also cover Rome. Both of these countries are going to also be central geographical locations of the gospel story coming up. We'll see specific times in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he actually has a sermon there that's documented. And he, and he wrote one of the greatest theological letters of all time, which is called the Book of Romans from Rome. Please join us for this episode of Message to Kings, guest speaker, Brant Frost. The Greeks were a truly amazing civilization. 
Anyone who has any understanding of history knows that. We obviously all know of Alexander the Great, of the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, but Greece is so much more than that. From its culture, its architecture, its maritime prowess, its military prowess, the phalanx, Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire, its philosophy, which even today is still studied and considered, Plato and Socrates, Diogenes and Aristotle, the legal systems of Solon and Pericles, which we'll be covering in more depth in this time together. But the real question is, with all of that potential, why did the Greeks collapse? Greek civilization at its high point lasted for barely a nanosecond in terms of the history of the world, and it was soon swallowed up by the Roman Republic and before that by the dictatorships of the monarchies of Macedonia, of Philip and his son Alexander and their successors. What was it about the Greeks that gave them so much success, enabled them to reach for the stars, figuratively and literally, they were great astronomers, and yet fall down so low. Why could the Greeks, despite their proclaimed love of freedom and democracy, never build a stable society that embodied and preserved those virtues that they claimed to believe in? We'll explore that question in this time together. I'm going to be drawing today from the great book which I recommend to you, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law by Colonel John Idesmo. This comes in three volumes, any one of whom would be an excellent addition to any Christian's library. You can purchase them individually or as a set. This particular volume I'm going to be drawing from is Volume 2. Its subtitle is Classical and Medieval. I'd like to begin with a quote from John Adams in a letter he wrote to Thomas Jefferson expressing his surprise at how disappointed he was in what he thought would be such an inspiring study of Greek philosophy, and particularly the laws of Plato and Plato's Republic. He says, quote, I am very glad that you have seriously read Plato, and still more rejoice to find that your reflections upon him equal so harmoniously my own. Some 30 years ago, I took it upon myself the severe task to go through all his works. I labored through the tedious toil, and my disappointment was very great, and my astonishment was even greater, and my disgust was shocking. His laws and his republic, from which I expected the most, disappointed me the most. That's from John Adams' letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1814. I'm going to read from Idesmo here. Modern thinkers tend to extol Greece as the ultimate secular society. The proclamation, of all things, the measure is man, has been the rallying cry for secular humanism ever since. In the modernist retelling of the story, the world had been bound in religious superstitions of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Hebrews until the Greeks and the Romans broke the ancient chains of superstition and founded a truly enlightened, secular civilization. The classical world basked in Greek culture until Christianity ushered in the Dark Ages, which held the world in captivity until Greek culture reasserted itself in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. But the evidence soundly refutes this view of history. First, if secular means the opposite of religious, the Greeks were far from secular. During the 6th century BC, a plague struck the Greek city-state of Athens, and the Athenians performed 
numerous sacrifices to appease the gods' anger. But the plague continued. They sought advice from the priestesses who served as an oracle, and she told them that there must be another god they had failed to appease. But even she did not know this god's name. At her urging then, a wise man from Canossus on the island of Crete was sent for, and he advised the Athenians to erect altars inscribed Agnosto Theo, the unknown god. They did so, and the plague ceased. The Athenians preserved one of these altars so that they would never forget this unknown god. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul declared on Mars Hill, quote, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by you and beheld your many devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Acts 17, 22-23. Incidentally, the King James Version translates uh, the word as too superstitious, but some translations, uh, including the New International Version, render the expression very religious. The Greek word can mean either or both. So depending on which translation of the Bible you use on a regular basis, it could say either one. The Greek city states, and again I'm reading from Idesmo, were filled with idols, temples, oracles, priests, and sacred prostitutes. Does that sound like a secular society to you? That's my commentary. Some of the gods of the Greeks were held in common. In addition, each city-state would have its own special gods and divinities, as did each household. These included some very old gods of the earth and the underground waters, dark lords of death and rebirth, fertility, headed by Hades himself. Later Greeks came to believe in the Olympian gods who dwelt on the top of Mount Olympus and governed various aspects of the universe. These included Zeus and Hera, the king and queen of the gods, Poseidon, the god over the seas, rivers, and horses, and many other gods, Apollyon, god of music and education, Ares and Ithene, god and goddess of war, Hermes, the god of language, Dionysus, the god of wine and pleasure, and many, many others. They also believed in heroes, men like the great Hercules, who, although born mortal, transcended their humanity through heroic acts and achieved immortality. Besides these, they believed in nymphs and nature spirits, demons who afflicted the mind and the body, and semi-divine giants and monsters. And then there were the firstborn of the gods, who constituted the fabric of the universe. Gaia was the earth. Pontus was the sea. Uranus, that's the Latin version of that, was the dome of heaven. In this sense, Greek religion could be called pantheistic. With varying degrees of sincerity, the Greeks worshipped their gods and sacrificed to them, sought to incur their favor and avoid their wrath. But they did not love their gods the way the Hebrews loved Jehovah. The gods of the Greek pantheon were superhuman, to be sure and more powerful than the people of the earth. But they did not have omnipotence or omnipresence. They had problems and conflicts on a more cosmic, colossal scale than our own. But they had problems and conflicts nonetheless. The Greeks might find qualities to admire in their gods, 
but the gods were far from sinless. They could be deceived, they could be seduced, they could make alliances, and they could double-cross and betray each other. The sky god Uranus reigned over the other gods until his son Cronus castrated and overthrew him. Cronus ruled until his sons, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, deposed him by chopping him up into a million pieces. The Greeks were a religious people, to be sure, but they were neither in awe of their gods nor in terror of them. As Russell Kirk has written in The Roots of American Order, Regnery, 1991, page 55, quote, The gods worshipped upon the Acropolis, even the wise Athena herself, were feeble models for a good social order. Alfred Zimmern, one of the most influential writers on Greek political institutions, remarks that the works of the Greek political thinkers were vitiated by their failure to realize the extent and the urgency of the claims of the individual soul. Men must be spiritually free before they can cooperate politically on the highest terms. In the last analysis, the weakness of the Greek political institutions can be traced back to the weakness of Greek religion. It has also been summarized by Dr. Overman in his work on Greece, Assumptions That Affect Our Lives, Tyndale House, 2006. Dr. Overman writes, The difference between Greek philosophy and Hebrew religion can be seen in these comments by Abraham Shore in A History of the Jews. Quote, to seek God was the ultimate wisdom for the Hebrews, to follow his precepts, the ultimate virtue. The Greeks accepted no revelation as ultimate. The Greek would bow to no law but that of self-expression, complete self-expression. Where the Hebrew would ask, what must I do? The Greek would ask, why must I do it? It has been said that the Greeks learned in order to comprehend. The Hebrews learned in order to revere. End of quote. But it is an overstatement to say the Greeks believed as though they were all of one accord. There were individuals who differed among them in many ways. The Minoans were different from the Greeks of the age of Solon and from the age of Plato and from the age of Alexander the Great. The Athenians were very different from the Spartans, and the Macedonians were different still. Even within the city of Athens, Aristotle disagreed with Plato, and a play by Sophocles differed from a play by Antigones and Aristophanes. And by the way, if I'm pronouncing any of these names wrong, I do apologize. So with this in mind, let us examine Greek culture and Greek law as they progressed and regressed over thousands of years. First, let's look briefly at the Minoan civilization from around 2000 BC to 1400 BC. According to Greek legend, the king on Crete named King Minoas, from whence we drill the name Minoans, kept a vast maze of caverns called the Labyrinth, in which lived a half-man, half-bull monster known as the Minotaur. King Minos required the Greeks to give him an annual tribute consisting of seven young men and seven young maidens. These sacrificial victims would become lost in the labyrinth and eventually the Minotaur would catch and eat them all. 
This continued annually until the Greek prince Theonus volunteered to be one of the victims. Theonus killed the Minotaur and used a trail of twine to find his way out of the labyrinth. Explorers have discovered a series of several winding caverns on the island of Crete that may have provided the basis for this legend. Others think that the labyrinth might have been a lower part of the palace itself. Little was known, however, about this early period, but the middle period in Minoan civilization reached a remarkable level of multi-story condominiums, magnificent wall frescoes in the palaces, and a very affluent upper class, a polytheistic and pantheistic religion that centered around a mother goddess and almost entirely female goddesses, running hot and cold water, paved roads, linked the major cities, and the best navy the world had seen up to that point, capable of battle or trade with Egypt, Asia Minor, Syria, or Mycenaean Greece. They spoke several languages at various stages of their history and left thousands of inscriptions, but thus far these have proven indecipherable to modern archaeologists. Minos, the legendary Minoan king, was thought by later Greeks to have been the son of Zeus and appointed by Zeus to rule over Crete. Richard Hooker says concerning the Minoan law and government, All archaeological evidence suggests that the Cretan states of the first half of the second millennium B.C. were bureaucratic monarchies, while the government was dominated by the priests, and while the monarch seemed to have some religious functions, the principal role of the monarch seemed to be that of a chief entrepreneur, or better yet, CEO of the Cretan state. For the Cretans operated their state as a business, and entrepreneurship seemed to be the order of the day. While the bulk of the population enjoyed the wealth of international trading, the circumstances of that trade were tightly controlled by the palace. Beneath the king was a large administration of scribes and bureaucrats who carefully regulated production and distribution both within the state and without. This administration kept incredibly detailed records, which implied that they exercised a great deal of control over the economy. In order to facilitate trade, the Cretans and their Aegean relatives developed the most advanced navy that had ever been seen up until that point. While scholars earlier believed that Crete must have been a great sea power, that view has been seriously challenged. The Cretans probably did not develop a military navy as did the Egyptians, but concentrated solely on trade and mercantilism. They did not build what looks like warships, but it seems that these warships were most likely mercantile ships with the capability of defense against pirates. End of quote from Richard Hooker. And by the way, that's from Hooker's book, Bureaucrats and Barbarians, the Minoans. You can find pretty much everything I'm discussing in this time together in John Ide's most excellent book from which I'm drawing extensively historical and theological foundations of law, by the way. This is volume two of a three-volume set. The Minoan civilization seems to have come to an abrupt end around the year 1100, either from volcanic destruction or from foreign invaders. It is doubtful whether the Minoans were closely related to the Greeks, but the Greeks looked to the Minoan civilization as a predecessor to their own. And now let's look at the Mycenaean civilization from about 1400 B.C. to 1100 B.C., the next stage in Greek development, as it were. The Mycenaeans 
settled in what is now Greece sometime before 2000 BC and seem to have derived their culture from the Minoan. Their government was monarchical. Their society bore a distinctive class structure. Their arts reflects an obsession with hunting and warfare. The Mycenaean civilization, in its religious aspects, synchronistic, in that they entered Greece with old Indo-European gods, including a sky god named Dias, whose name may have later become Zeus, either through cultural interaction or through conquest of the Minoans, the Mycenaean Greeks adopted the Minoan gods and integrated them into their own pantheon. Later they also adopted, or maybe originated, many of the gods of the earth and the underworld. The Mycenaean religion sought to placate these gods and win their favor by offerings and sacrifice, which probably included human sacrifice. The Mycenaean civilization faded and disappeared between the years 1200 and 1100 BC, possibly due to being overrun by the Doric Greeks, the ancestors of the Spartans. Also, the Trojan War occurred toward the end of the Mycenaean Age, and Homer immortalized their victory in the Iliad. Now let's look at the Greek Dark Ages from 1100 BC to 800 BC. After the fall of the Mycenaean civilization, around 1100, there came a period of five centuries where relatively little is known, as writing seems to have disappeared during this period. During this time, the Greek people settled into city-states which were largely independent of each other. Most of these city-states were either monarchies or dictatorships. Most of them formed into two alliances of ethnic groups, one consisting mostly of the Doric Greeks, led by Sparta, and the other consisting of the Ionian Greeks, led by Athens. And this rivalry and tension finally exploded into the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century, which resulted in a limited victory of Sparta. In the Archaic Age, 800 B.C. to 510 B.C., saw the continued development of the Greek city-states, cities that controlled some of the surrounding rural territory but owned no central authority beyond themselves. And most of these city-states were monarchies, but in some the monarchy was replaced by an aristocracy, and in a few there was something close to democracy or republicanism. And here we'll talk about Draco, from which we get the term draconian. Athens during this period was in the throes of a lot of political and social chaos. And then in 621 BC, a wealthy conservative landowner by the name of Draco tried to restore the order to the city by bestowing upon his city what may have been its first written code of laws. Draco claimed to have received these from the oracle at Delphi, who transmitted it to him from the gods. According to the 4th century orator Daimonides, these laws were also written in blood. So strict were they that the very term draconian has become a synonym for severity. The draconian code protected private property by punishing even petty thieves with death. Plutarch wrote that, quote, those that stole a cabbage or an apple were to suffer even as villains that committed sacrilege or murder, end of quote. Draco justified these penalties by saying that lesser crimes deserve death, and for the greater ones no heavier penalty could be found. If you look at Draco's system of law versus biblical law, you immediately see how the injustice becomes apparent. 
punishing someone with death for stealing an apple. You see in the Bible that the principle of restitution is critical to an understanding of proper justice. In the Bible, very few crimes are punished with death. Most are punished with restitution for the wronged or victimized party. And this is key to understanding the superiority of the laws of Moses and the biblical-based common law that would be the basis for the English Constitution and the English system of laws, which in turn have influenced America and the entire Anglo and English-speaking world. It's very important to remember as we go through our study of ancient Greece and Rome to note where they departed from God's model for His people and the inspiration of which uh, was to be taken by the whole world and see how as they departed from that standard and they deviated from what God considers just, they would suffer in the long term and have to change things as they did with the draconian laws. Draco's laws, in fact, didn't last very long at all. The great Athenian lawgiver Solon repealed most of the draconian code except for a few statutes pertaining to homicide, and he replaced them with a far more moderate code of laws written largely on wooden slabs or cylinders that would be stood upright in the central part of the city. Solon's code has been lost, unfortunately, except for a very few quotations by various authors. But all agree that they were far milder and less draconian than the Code of Draco. Solon was a reformer, but he pushed a moderate course and instituted a constitution that combined the features of aristocracy with those of democracy. He did not cancel all debts, for example, but he did cancel pledges where a man's freedom had been given as a guarantee and freed the debtors from bondage. And we see a similar principle in the Old Testament laws of Moses where the principle of seven years of being released from debts and obligations and also the year of Jubilee where all long-standing contracts and obligations reverted back to the original owner. As an example, if an impoverished family had to lease their land in Israel for a period of a long period of time. If it, whenever the year of Jubilee came around, all that land would revert back to them. So it was a way of making sure that no one's mistakes or no one's uh, bad decisions would forever destroy their family's ability to live in the land and have a property of their own. We see in the histories of the Greeks that also Solon established a council of archons called the Areopagus, named after the hill upon which they met, whose function was to screen proposals to the popular assembly. The popular assembly consisted of 400 members who would be chosen by lot, that is by drawing, by you know random lottery. He divided the people into five classes based on their annual income. Only the top three classes were allowed political privileges. The top two classes could hold major offices, and the third class could hold minor city offices. The lowest class could not hold office, but they could attend the assembly. These privileges also carried with them responsibilities, such as service in government positions when called upon. However, these privileges and responsibilities belonged only to citizens and did not include slaves who constituted a large percentage of the Athenian population. Indeed, estimates of the slave population of Athens in this period range from 30 to 80 percent. And also, women and children were not counted as participants in the system, so when you factor all that in, a relatively small percentage of the population 
were participating in the political environment and the decisions of the community. Solon, in addition to his legal reforms, also reformed the economy, imposing price controls and prohibiting the exportation of agricultural products other than olive oil. We see throughout history that leaders attempt to impose price controls or wage controls or both with the same failed result every time. Sadly, Solon's legacy did not endure. Having created a very orderly system of government, it was not maintained in his absence. Before he left Athens on a tour of the Middle East on, during which he would die, Solon required the Athenians to promise not to change his policies for 10 years. However, after Solon's departure, Athens was plunged into chaos and four years later, a dictator seized power and the city reverted back to tyranny. And despite the method of seizing power, this dictator is recorded by both Herodotus and Aristotle as having agreed to leave the ancient laws in place and that this dictator ruled in a temperate manner. And after his death, his son restored the repressive measures in order to maintain power. And around the year 510 BC, an aristocratic family, whose name I won't attempt to pronounce, persuaded the oracle at Delphi to direct the Spartans to overthrow the tyrant, after which Solon's principles were restored. It's very important to note here how the law of God in the Old Testament is still being followed by large numbers of Jewish believers today, the Orthodox Jewish community, and it influenced the common laws of England and the English-speaking world and our own legal systems today. And even though there were times of apostasy in the Old Testament during the period of the judges and all throughout history, you see the impact that these laws have. The laws of Solon, for example, have been lost to us except for a few quotes. But the entirety of the law of Moses is preserved in every Bible in the world, of which there are billions of copies. It's truly amazing when you consider how the law of God has endured for thousands of years and has been preserved and cherished and followed by faithful believers from the time they were first given at Mount Sinai even until the present day. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings as much as I did. Uh, listener Brant Frost from Newman, Georgia, he's just such a student of the Bible and history. I, I couldn't think of a lot of people who would be more qualified uh, to assist with this one as a listener. He, just, he, he loves history. He loves governments. And um, he's such a student. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Um, also, you know, check out his YouTube channel, The American Minute. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com. <laughs>